Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hosea. In chapter 11, you'll find Hosea after the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. He's the first so-called minor prophet, not minor in substance, but minor in length. If you're visiting with us this morning, we do bid you a warm word of welcome. We're in the middle of a summer series of sermons when people are on vacation, coming and going, and normally work through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. And in the summer, we break from that and do a more topical sermon series. And this year, we're doing The Heart of God. And so, hope you enjoy and are benefited by this sermon with a little different style. We'll be all over the Bible, but in Hosea 11 mostly. And uh, I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. And as a point of personal privilege before we begin, let me also welcome um, Paul and Jan Rogers with us. It escaped me this morning during our uh, senior graduation. Uh, Paul and Jan have long been friends. I've known them for 10 years. They, they ministered in Savannah at, at the Independent Presbyterian Church where um, Terry Johnson, another one of my mentors, pastors, and Paul is the director of family and student life there, and uh, he was here this morning um, speaking to our young people up in the Sunday school. I thank you, Paul. Grateful for your friendship, and it's great to see you in Greensboro this weekend, and good to see you too, John. Thankful for you. So, if you would turn then to Hosea 11, um, and before we begin, let me orientate you to the text, right? So, this is one of the great Um, chapters of the Bible that gives you a window into the very heart and soul of God Himself. And I'm going to use this passage to ask the question, how does God feel when He looks upon Israel in their sin, Israel heading off to exile, justly deserved exile, a painful exile? How does God feel as He looks down upon them? Is it even right uh, to to speak of God feeling anything? Now, if you remember the context of Hosea, you'll know that Hosea was an 8th century prophet, which means he ministered in the 700s B.C., probably around 750 B.C. That's 250 years after David, and 200 years or so, give or take a few decades after Rehoboam's disastrous decision to follow the advice of the young bucks who were his friends and to ignore the advice of the seasoned elder statesman who guided his father Solomon. You remember it was all about taxation and the people wanted things to be easier after Solomon's building programs and Rehoboam said, no, I'm not going to make it easier, I'm going to make it harder. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And that decision was used by God to fulfill His prophecy. God was working behind the scenes through the stupidity of this young king to fulfill His promise to Solomon that God would rip the greater part of Israel away from the line of David and give it into the hand of a man called Jeroboam. So, the northern ten tribes, you remember, capitalized eventually in Samaria. We'll hear about that this evening in our sermon, but they broke off from David and went their own way. And Hosea is one of the only two prophets in the Old Testament, Hosea and Amos, who principally addressed Israel in the north. The southern kingdom of Judah uh, kept the capital, Jerusalem, and uh, the temple. And so, 
That was all 200 years ago, and so began Jeroboam, uh, the new non-Davidic king, ruling over these northern ten tribes. And no sooner had he begun in his kingdom, of course, you remember, the wheels came off, and things went from bad to worse. Um, Jeroboam was insecure, and insecurity tends to lead one not to trust God, but to act to protect yourself. And Jeroboam was concerned that the northern ten tribes had nowhere to worship. And, well, they did have somewhere to worship. It was Jerusalem. And he was concerned they would be going to Jerusalem, you know, all year for these yearly feasts. And as they went back down and mixed with their brothers, it wouldn't be good for keeping his kingdom separate from the, 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 the kingdom in the south. He was concerned that the people would leave him and go back to David and to Jerusalem. And so he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make two alternative, more user-friendly uh, sites for worship, one in the north, Bethel, and one, so one in the north, Dan, and one in the south, Bethel. So wherever you were in the land, you could go and worship God. That was bad enough because God said, of course, you worship in Jerusalem, but He made things even worse when He created two golden images, bulls that represented the strength of Yahweh, which may sound sincere, but it was wrong-headed and wrong-hearted because God expressly forbids that He will never be worshipped by an image. We worship by listening, not by looking. You, you saw no form. You heard a voice, you remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And so, um, that basically introduced 200 years of deepening apostasy spiritual idolatry, sexual immorality, and moral degeneracy. And those three things always go together. If you lose your vision of God, you will lose your vision of sex. And when you lose your vision of sex, you will lose your character and your integrity, and you'll go to hell in a handbasket. That happens to individuals. It also happens to cultures. And for 200 years, things have been going from bad to worse in Israel. Enter Hosea in the middle of the 8th century, 750 B.C., who's bringing this message. Now, when he's beginning his message, of course, things were a little unstable. Israel had actually been enjoying financial prosperity. Assyria was caught up with internal divisions. And so, when the cat's away, the mice will play, as they say. And so, all the other countries were enjoying an Indian summer of prosperity. But now Assyrians got their act together. They're together, and they are looking to move south and west and to take over the whole world. Superpowers are always humble that way. And um, their fate, so Israel are kind of looking up nervously as Assyria is coming down. And God calls Hosea to warn Israel of their impending judgment, that they're going to go to uh, off into exile. Now, Hosea's ministry, you remember, is a little bit, well, weird. He was called to minister in word, but he's also called to minister in the picture of his marriage. God called him, you remember, to marry Gomer, who was, well, a prostitute. And she would forsake him again and again and again, and Homer would have to, and Hosea would have to go humble himself and go down to her lover's house and drag her back home. And one time, at least, he had to go down to the marketplace because she'd sold herself off as a sex slave. And so there she was, naked, tied to a pole, and people are bidding for her, his wife. 
and the auctioneer is saying, he'll give me five shekels. And someone says, I'll give you five shekels. What about six? Six over on the left. What about seven? Seven over, the, over here. Eight at the back, okay, eight. Nine at the front, ten. Ten over on the left. Eleven, 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 twelve, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen shekels. Who'll give me fifteen shekels of silver? More than fifteen shekels of silver. And um, Hosea looks in his wallet. He's only got fifteen shekels of silver. And he says, I'll give you fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethach of barley. Done. I have no idea what a lethic of barley is. But Hosea did. It was part of the price he brought to buy his wife back from her adultery. That whole picture was a picture of the heart of God for his people, Israel, who, despite his love, had forsaken him again and again and again. And Hosea chapter 11 gives us an insight into God's heart, and I want to read that with you this morning. So please listen carefully as we get to the Word of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they refuse to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, those were cities destroyed in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from that land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria. They were going to trust Assyria to be their personal savior, you remember, and they got more than they bargained for. And oil is carried to Egypt. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. How does God feel about Israel's sin? How does God feel about your sin? Is it right to speak of God having feelings? Feelings of sadness, feelings of grief, 
And it might surprise you to know that this is quite a controversial subject. And it goes right back to the fathers of the church. And if you, if you kind of read theology, some of you are theological geeks here, and if you're, not, if you're visiting and you're not a theological geek, don't worry, we, welcome, we love you being here. Just hang on for the ride. We're going through deep waters this morning, but we're talking about the heart of God, and that's deep. As Augustine said, I can see the depths, I just can't see the bottom. And so if it was simple this morning, you've got the wrong preacher. So you've got to worship God with all of your mind if you're going to worship Him with all of your heart. So God's calling you to think. So strap on and hold tight. The theological subject we're dealing with is called the impassibility of God. Now, my accent gets me in trouble all the time. A bunch of you are writing down already the impossibility of God. It's not impossibility, it's impassibility. I-M-P-A-S-S-I-B-I-L-T-Y, impossibility. I think that's right. Anyway, um, you know what I mean. Um, the word impassibility comes from the Latin root passibilitas, which is connected with the idea of suffering. And the question really is this, when God looks at this world, the turmoil, the, the pain, concentration camps, the pogroms in Russia, when He looks at this world, does God, does God feel perturbed? Is He disturbed? Is He left unhappy? Now, it might surprise you to know that for the last 2,000 years, the best theologians, men like Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, the best theologians, have all rightly said God is impassable. He's without body, parts, or passions. He doesn't suffer. He doesn't feel pain. The illustration you might use would be an earthquake. You, you, you know, let's say there's a Richter 10 earthquake level going on in California. And the world's shaking, but you're flying in a dreamliner overhead at 33,000 feet. The, the dreamliner doesn't shake. It belongs to a different realm of existence. It's in the air above. It's not on the ground. It doesn't feel the earthquake. And that's kind of an illustration. It breaks down, but it's kind of an illustration. Does God, is God moved? Is He sad looking at this world? And the best theologians say no. Now, over the past 250 years or so, this vision of God has increasingly been challenged by theologians who, well, prefer to think of God as kind of, well, more millennial, like a, a God in skinny jeans, a, a God in touch with His feminine side, with His emotions. And that's a long, shaggy dog story, but one of the big things, if you read about this subject, you'll meet the name Jürgen Moltmann, who was a German theologian who was very traumatized by the concentration camps in World War II, and he, he was like, where is God in all of this? And he came to the conviction, God is suffering, and he had this, he kind of, it all connects to the cross. He says, on the cross, God is both active and passive. He's active in saving the world, but He's passive in suffering in Christ. And that's half right and all wrong, because He's confusing some really important things. Christ is a person, the person God's Son, but He has two natures. He's a divine nature. He's a human nature. And on the cross, all of the suffering happened to the human nature of Christ, not 
God the Son in His divine nature did not suffer, but God the Son in His human nature did. The best illustration, and it's one of those, I know the St. Patrick's Lutheran people on YouTube are going to rebuke me for my illustration. Um, watch the video later on. Not me, it's anyway. But anyway, so I've got two hands, right, left hand, right hand. If I put my right hand in boiling water, the right hand's burning, the left hand's not. Christ is one person with two natures. His right hand, his, his, his human nature goes to hell and suffers. His divine nature did not. His human nature experiences abandonment by God. His divine nature did not. The Trinity was not torn apart upon the cross, and Milt Moltmann confuses all of that, right? But you can understand why our generation, which is the most emotional generation ever to walk the face of God's green earth, likes Moltmann's vision of God. They don't even know who Moltmann is, but it kind of trickles down. Things do trickle down, right? And we're in touch with our feelings. We're deeply rooted in the Romantic movement of the 19th century, which was a reaction, of course, you remember, after the, the horrors of the French Revolution and the the, the degradation of the Industrial Revolution, where our cities became toxic wastelands, and people began thinking of the universe as a machine, and human body as a machine, a, a soup of chemicals wrapped up in a sack of skin, that kind of mind, mindset, which is not very attractive. But, and so, the, as a reaction against that, the Romantics came forward and said, no, you've got to get back in touch with what makes us human, music, art, the appreciation of beauty, poetry, all that kind of stuff, right? And they went to the other extreme, and their kind of postage, their motto was, don't think too much. Trust your heart wherever it takes you. That's the romantic. And thus, the love child came out in the modern evangelical movement that's really in touch with its feelings and millennialism and so forth and so on. Now, you think, why does it matter? I mean, it's 11 o'clock no, it's 12 o'clock. I want to get to lunch. The caffeine's hardly even begun to trickle into my brain. This is far too deep. Please just tell me about the love of God and let me go home. Why does it matter? Well, it does matter, right? Because you cannot honor God as you ought unless you know Him as He is, right? Your thoughts of God affect everything. And when you can't see God, it's kind of important that you know who the God is you can't see. And the only way you can do that is listen to Him, right? It's important, too, because there's extremes on both sides. If you, if you, if you go down the road too far with the romantics, you'll end up with having a God whose heart is constantly in turmoil, stressed out, a God who's effectively been victimized by His own creatures, a God who's not really sovereign, a God who knows how to weep but does not know how to rule. And that's not the kind of God you find in the Bible. Can I get an amen for that? And then on the other side of the equation, if you go too far along the lines of the divine impassibility people, like James Dolezal, who's a good man, Reformed Baptist, but he pushes impassibility so far, I'm left with a God who's so far above me, he's not near to me, and he's, he's, un, he's unresponsive, he's cold, he's basically a block of theological granite, unfeeling, remote, apathetic, unmoved, unmovable, the kind of God I struggle to think of as loving, and the kind of God who doesn't seem very lovable either. And when I read Dollars All, I kind of think, why even pray? God's so up there, He's not affected by His creatures at all. 
well then, if, he, if, he's, if, he's not effect, if, he, if he doesn't respond, if he's not affected, why, what am I even doing praying to him, right? So these two extremes. So how on earth are we going to kind of meet in the middle? Well, let me come down. It'll, it'll make, hopefully, things seem not so complicated. And I don't stand six feet above contradiction. I want you to think this morning through the, at the end, through the rest of this sermon about the nature of man, the nature of God, and the nature of revelation. First of all, the nature of man. I'm going to come back to Hosea 11. Don't panic. So human beings are emotional creatures. We just are. And the word emotional is interesting. It, it comes from the French word émotion, which is derived from the Latin word émouvere, which means to be moved, to be agitated. Listen to a really interesting um, discussion on the London Lyceum podcast a few weeks ago um, about this English scholar, Thomas Hickson, I think his name was. Yes, Thomas Dixon who's in a Cambridge PhD, and he studies emotions and passions and where that language came from. It was fascinating. He talks about the word emotion also rooted in the idea of the mob and how often our emotions well up within us and overwhelm us. Like, so, man, you're lying under the fridge kind of fiddling with things, and there's like an upside-down jam jar top, and there's screws inside it, little screws, and you see your five-year-old kicking the football down the hall, and you told him a thousand times, don't do that inside, hasn't listened to you, and the ball's coming, and before you can say stop, he kicks the ball, and the ball bounces down and knocks the top of the jam jar everywhere, and those little screws are scattered to the four winds of the house. And you feel as if you're watching a movie, you kind of, you have an outer body experience. He's about to have one too, but you have an outer body experience. You look and it's like somebody else is lying there and they're standing up on the top of their heads blowing off and it's a terrible mess. And you're saying all these horrible things and you, it just kind of happens, right? And what happened is something happened and you experienced it and it produced a mob of emotions in your heart. It's part of the human fallen condition. And if you remember last week's sermon, we kind of live, we're creatures locked in space and time, and we kind of, we, we, facing forwards, we're hurtling in this present moment, which doesn't really exist because the moment's passing fast. And you, really, the moment is how long it takes to think one thought, but it's passing at like a millionth of a second at a time, so it's, it's hurtling into the past, and you're standing in this kind of moment, and the future's coming at you very quickly, and it's unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. A space rock could at this moment burst through this roof and squash you all to smithereens. It's unlikely, don't stress out about it, but it could happen, and we don't know, right? And so we're, we're facing this unknown future. And then as you look back over your shoulder, there's the past, full of all the things you did do, all the things you didn't do, lost opportunity, how you sinned against other people, how they sinned against you, all this thought of regret and shame, and what was I thinking? How do I fix this? And all of this future and past converge in the moment, and our hearts are a turbulent emotional place. That's part of the human condition. Now, to some extent, that was even true of Christ. Now, He didn't have any sinful emotions, ever. But there were times when He, on Palm Sunday in His last week of life, as He walks across the hills in Judea, and He sees Jerusalem and the holy city, and this, the pilgrims streaming in for Passover week, 
and thoughts start coming into his mind, thoughts he didn't have five minutes before. These are people I love. These are people I've longed for since I first had conscious knowledge as a human being, and before that in my divine nature. I've loved these people with an everlasting love. My Father has, but they don't want me, and they don't want me because they want nothing to do with my Father. And those thoughts agitated his human nature, and he suddenly finds himself weeping. How I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. When he walks into the temple and he sees the the court of the Gentiles full of business, when it should be full of Gentiles, standing as close as they could get to the presence of God, wondering. But there's no room for them because it's full of business. And he is enraged in righteous anger. And that happened to him. He wasn't angry five minutes before. He wasn't crying five minutes before he stood outside Jerusalem. Something happened, and it provoked an emotional response from the heart of Jesus. That's part of the human condition. And then later that week on Thursday night, as he makes his way to Gethsemane and stands and falls on his knees and tries to wrestle with what it would mean for him to bear the infinite wrath of God. And in his human mind, which was finite, he feels like a little boy trying to plumb the depths of the cosmos with a flashlight. Easier to plumb the depths of the cosmos with a flashlight than to understand with the human mind what it would mean for Christ to become the repository for 10 billion lifetimes worth of sin and no longer to be treated as the Son of God, but as the sin of the world. And he's lost, he's overwhelmed, he's sweating blood and saying, I can't cope. I'm deeply sorrowful. He hadn't had those emotions before. They come upon him in his human condition. And then on the cross, whenever the soldiers knelt and hammered rusty, rough nails through his wrist, and they shatter his metacarpals and pierce his median nerve, and his adrenaline, his adrenal glands are squirting adrenaline and cortisol into his blood system, and his heart's pounding, and he's feeling stressed out. And that's just the exordium of hell. He hasn't gone. You know, it's like the, when you go to Disneyland and you get your little map showing you the park. That's like Christ's physical sufferings, like the map of Disneyland, but has nothing compared to actually going onto the rides and experiencing them as Christ moves beyond his physical sufferings to a place where the sufferings are brought beneath the bottom of finite misery, and he becomes sin, and the gravitational forces of the wrath of God become infinite and consume him altogether a different level of suffering. And he's there, and he's experiencing that, and it's happening to him in his human nature. That's the nature of man. We're emotional creatures, okay? So, nature of man over here. Now, next, think about the nature of God. God doesn't experience life that way. Events don't happen to him. He entirely transcends time and space. Not only is he above time and space, but he permeates time and space, right? Follow me. Think, okay? I know your brain's dripping out your ears. Mine is too, but think. He's present in every place in time, in space. He's present everywhere in space. He's also present at every event of history. His omnipresence is both spatial and temporal. 
And so he's equidistant from every historical event and sees them with complete understanding. Like when you watch a movie, you're trapped in the moment. Unless you can scrub, but forget that. But you're in the theaters and you're watching the movie and you're kind of trapped scene by scene by scene by scene. You can't move forward, you can't move back. God is more like the director of the movie, and I know this breaks down too, but Spielberg's been working on the, on the, new, the new Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, I think, for a long time. And he can see the whole movie, every screen, every, every flower, every... every you know, product placement, every Bud Light sitting on the, on the uh, bar trying to rescue the brand. It's all there, and he knows, he knows it all and sees it all. But even Spielberg's got to think about each individual scene. He can't think of them all at once. God thinks he sees every event of history, every creature from a gnat to a hummingbird flying in the Ecuadorian rainforest to the dust and the pebbles going round Saturn's rings, every human being from the least to the greatest, all of the events, all of their thoughts, all of their words, all of their choices are before him in a moment of complete, infinite clarity. And in eternity, right, God, you remember last week, he experiences his existence doesn't ebb and flow. It doesn't grow and expand. It doesn't go forward and backward. He lives in the full possession of his ever-blessed and eternal, limitless glory at once. Never rises, never decreases. It's always switched on full throttle glory in all of his attributes at once. He doesn't experience the passing of seconds. Time is not, he does not serve time. Time serves him. And so God doesn't change. It's not like the force in Star Wars. I feel a disturbance in the force. No, there's no disturbance in God. The, 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 the default nature of God, the, sorry, the default experience of God is blessedness. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And I'm indebted to Paul's pastor and my friend and mentor, Terry Johnson, an excellent book called The Blessedness of God. And we can live in full assurance that God is not man, He should lie, or a son of man, He would change His mind. The Lord says, I do not change. I am the Lord. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Your, faithful, your security rests on God's unchangeability. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This, the shadows of… I know there are no shadows in God's glory, metaphor. The shadows of God's glory never lengthens. The sun of God's majesty never sets. It's always on and always on in all of its being and glory. So think about this blessedness of God, right? These are some quotes from the book. This is Lewis Bailey, who was a 16th century British minister. Blessedness is that perfect and immeasurable possession of joy and glory which God hath in Himself forever and is the cause of all the bliss and perfection that every creature enjoys in its measure. In other words, the joys you experience in life are like drops, but they all root back to Him as an, a shoreless, fathomless ocean of 
blessedness. And he stands in no need of his creatures. Not one creature can add to his glory or reduce it, can add to his happiness or diminish it. He does not need us. We need him, right? John Gill, this is a great quote, Puritan John Gill, God is entire and complete, lacking nothing, deprived of nothing, needing nothing, possessing all good things. We are constantly aware of all that we lack, discontent brews within our souls because of needs that go unmet or desires that go unfilled. We are unsettled by our deficiencies. Name whatever it may be that happiness consists in, and it will be found in God in full perfection. Does it consist in dominion? He rules over all forever and ever and ever. Does it consist in wealth and riches? He possesses all. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. His son is the heir of all things. Does it consist in wisdom and knowledge? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. Does it lie in power? He is almighty. He speaks, it's done. He commands, it holds fast. Does it lie in pleasure? In his presence are pleasures forevermore. Does it lie in fame and celebrity? In the high opinion of others, God's name is excellent in all the earth. So whatever you think about God's emotions, it's got to be consistent with God's blessedness. Now, this is where the chapter on the blessedness of God in Terry's book is just astounding. When you think of God, he says, you've got to have four knots carefully in mind. You're thinking, you're giving me a knot in my head. Well, I'm giving you, let me give you four more knots, right? God's, whatever we mean by God's emotions, God's emotions are not human. They're not like ours, right? Not only in degree, as if God's bigger than us, better, but they belong to a different level of being altogether. He is God, we are not. His thoughts are not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways, and his emotions are not like ours. Our emotions surprise us. All of God's emotions are foreknown by him. We are the victim of our emotions. God is never the victim of his passions. He's never overcome by them. God's emotions are not human. Secondly, God's emotions are not physical. No blood rushes through his veins. No glands pump hormones into his body. His heart never pounds. His face never flushes. His knees never knock. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, God's emotions are not sinful. Our emotions are too often marred by sin. It's like Goldilocks and the three bears. Our emotions are like the porridge, too hot and too cold and never just right. Or like the bed, our hearts are too hard or too soft, but never just right. But God's emotions are never corrupted or tainted by sin. And then thirdly, God's emotions are not passive. They're not human, not physical, not sinful, not passive. We don't choose our emotions. They happen. Like the fridge illustration. It, ha- it just happens. God's emotions are determined by Him. They are deliberately chosen. He determines them. They do not determine Him. 
Let me put it like this. God feels, whatever we mean by God feels, right? God feels the way He ought to feel looking at a human history that He Himself has planned in its minutest detail. The devil never ruins his day. The devil does his worst, and God takes the devil's worst and turns it around and uses that to fulfill his good plans, like the cross. Devil rubbing his hand with glee. We have won. I tell you, we have won, he said. We've killed the prince of life. And then Peter says, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you put him on the cross. The devil's going, uh-oh. It's like, it's like Wiley Cusey when the rock's falling, and he kind of looks up and goes, oh. And he puts up this little parasol, and then holds up the sign, help, and <laughs> love that cartoon. Anyway, so w- whatever we mean by God's emotions, He is sovereign over them, and they're always right and proper and they reside in his will. So his wrath, properly speaking, and we'll get to that in the week on wrath later, is actually a choice. He chooses to destroy evil because it's the right thing to do. But he's not like a bad-tempered ogre storming about the heaven throwing things. It's his determined choice to destroy evil in all its forms. That is wrath. But it exists in the, in the immediate presence of his blessedness. Isn't he lovely? Right. So, you've got the nature of man, the nature of God, and lastly and quickly, the nature of revelation, right? We would have no way of understanding God. He would always and forever be above us and beyond us and always will be had God not reached out to us with revelation, pictures, revelation, and creation, but also verbal revelation in His Word, and that, that, those words are human words, and God uses them to reveal Himself to us. Now, Calvin, you remember, uses the word accommodatio, God's bending down, he's stooping like a little a, a mother holding a baby in her arms and gaggling at her. How much I love you. Blah, 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 blah. She's not saying E equals MC squared. She's not explaining the deep mysteries of the universe. She's just looking at the baby and babbling to him or her and telling the little child how much she loves the child. And there's a a real communication going on there. She's not telling the baby everything she knows, but she's telling the child something that is true. And that's really important. Whenever God reveals Himself to us, it's true. He's not deceiving us. It's true for us. And in some way that I can't explain because God's too big and I'm too small, it's also true for God. Otherwise, revelation has just become deception, and God is saying He's one way when in reality is another, and that would be terrible. The whole world would become a vast horror of hell if that was true. God is true in His words. So, with that said, how can we explain words like Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth? Or Exodus 32, God relented from the disaster He spoke of bringing on His people. Or 1 Samuel 15, 35, the Lord regretted that He had made Saul king. Does that not assume that God changed? Now, Calvin says this. This is helpful. Listen now. We're getting near the end. We shall not attribute repentance to God 
without saying either that he is ignorant of what is going to happen, or cannot escape it, or acted hastily and rashly rushed into a decision which he later came to regret. Now, that is not the God of the Bible. So, God isn't going, oh, I made a mistake. Repentance of mind, Calvin says, implies a mistake, and God cannot make mistakes. That's actually Beaky, sorry. Stephen Charnock said, God is so wise that he cannot err. He's so holy, he cannot do evil, and his certain prescience or foreknowledge secures him against any, any unexpected event. Calvin again, God speaks to us in a mood of accommodation, like a mother prattling to her baby, suitable to our weakness, using the word repent to communicate a change of action. He went on to say, but meanwhile, neither God's plan nor His will is reversed, nor His, viola- nor, nor his volition, His choice, altered. But what He had from eternity foreseen, approved, and decreed, He pursues in uninterrupted tenor, however sudden the variation may appear in men's eyes. We suddenly, he changes suddenly, and it looks to us as if he changed, but in reality, God didn't change, we change. It's like you take off on a plane in the midst of a thunderstorm, it's dark and foreboding, and then suddenly you're through the clouds and the sun's shining, but the sun didn't begin to shine. The sun didn't suddenly go, oh, here's a plane, turn on. The sun was there all the time, shining. It was you as you come through the clouds. Suddenly you experience the sun that was always there. And likewise, think of an elect child of God. Their sins have been forgiven from the moment Christ died. He has paid the down payment for their sins. And yet, they're a child of wrath, not because God um, feels hateful and hostile to them, but they experience the wrath of God because as yet they have not repented. And when they repent and are brought to repentance, they change, and so their experience of God changes. Just like the plane bursting through the clouds, they turn from their sins, and suddenly their experience of God goes away from the the experience of God's wrath, and it becomes the warm sunshine of His love. That is essentially what's going on in all those words that seem to suggest God is changing. And I give you a choice. You can have the helpless victim God in skinny jeans. He goes, oh, no, I made a mistake. Or you can have the real God whose sovereignty rules over all, who works all things after the counsel of His will, who does according to His will in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps, and none can stay His hands. And yet, at times to show you that He's real, that He has a heart, He comes alongside you and truly says, in a way that you can understand and doesn't, doesn't explain the full glory of infinite majesty, but says, I want you to know that sin bothers me. I hate sin. I, I hate what it does to you. I hate what it does to other people, and I long for you to repent. And so in Hosea, God says, how do I feel? I feel like a, a father watching his child destroy their lives. I remember the time I carried them, and their feet, toesies hardly touching the ground, and they walked with their hands in mine, and we walked down the hall, and they, their life was so full of possibility and adventure and, and, and hope, 
and to watch them grow up and dash their lives to pieces against the rocks of false gods. And in a way that I can't explain that is fully in tenor with God's unchanging nature without variation or shadow of change, His blessed in heaven, there's joy in His presence, and yet He takes no pleasure in sending these people to hell or to exile. And if you read the chapter, it's incredible. This is God describing Himself. And we should not, if you're ashamed to speak of God the way God speaks of Himself, you're in trouble, right? God says, I led them with cords of kindness. I eased the yoke from their jaws. I said, they shall not go to the land of Egypt. I will send them to Assyria. They'll be devoured by the sword their cities torn down. They're bent on turning from me. Though they call out to me, even on that day, I will not answer them, right? They will call, and in judicial discipline, I will not answer them. And yet, in the very next verse, God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? He describes himself almost beside himself. They deserve judgment, but I can't bear to bring judgment upon them. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm. Now, God's compassion is always there. It never grows, because if it grows now, why didn't it grow yesterday? It doesn't mix. It, it's always there, but he's, he's babbling to it like a mother with her baby. My compassions grow warm and tender. I'll not execute my wrath on them. I will send them out, but ultimately I'll not forsake them, and one day I will bring them back home to me. And that's God. And both are true. He's transcendent in the heavens. He's also Emmanuel. He's near to us. And so when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's about to raise the man from the dead for crying out loud, and he looks at Mary and Martha and thinks, he sees her broken hearts. He sees them saying again, if he'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He feels the weight of four days when they were heartbroken and their heart torn to smithereens. And he said to his disciples, I was glad I was not there. Why? Because if I was there, I couldn't just watch him die. I'd have raised my friend. I'd have healed him before he died. I couldn't have done nothing. But I was glad I wasn't there for your sake. And he's there, without denying any of that, big, warm, salty tears begin to roll down Christ's face. Not because he's angry at God's plan, not because he regrets God's plan, but he's honestly and earnestly sad at the pain this good plan has brought into their lives. And he knows, 30 seconds, they're going to be thrilled and dancing and happy. But in the mean, right now, though, it's sad, and his heart is moved, because it ought to be moved. And I picture in my mind's eye two angels looking down, and the one nudging the other and saying, isn't he just like his father? Because he that has seen me has seen the Father. And isn't he lovely? And as Christ dies on the cross and becomes sin, and the Father's pleased to crush him because of his love for you, do you think the Father looked on at his Son and felt nothing? Was God frozen in heaven with the smile of a Buddha just looking on? Or was his heart not also, in a sense, reek? If God could be recoiling in his heart at the thought of sending Israel to Assyria, and they deserved it. Can you tell me God's heart was not recoiling at the thought of sending His Son to hell? And there's pastors telling me that, no, no, God felt nothing. God was only pleased 
I'm thinking, how can God be, how can, how can God's heart recoil at sending Israel to, to Assyria and God's heart not recoil in a similar sense and sending his own son to hell? No, there's a mystery. Mysterium tremens, a tremendous mystery in this God. He's so big and I can't, I can't get my arms around him. And he's certainly not safe but I tell you, he's good. And his heart is warm. And when, when God, and I'll leave you here with this, when God sends cancer into your life, or he takes a husband out of your life, as he did with Miss Cindy this week and Harry, or Miss Kathy and Tim, I tell you, his heart recoils within him. Even though Jesus in heaven has been praying, Father, it's my will that those you have given me be with me where I am to behold my glory. And every day Christ prays that prayer over you. I, I want Terry to be home in glory. I want Kathy home in glory. I want Kent home in glory. And the Father says, not today, son. Soon, but not today. And the joy in the angels as Harry's soul breaches the, the space-time continuum and enters the presence of God. And yet, at the same moment, if I understand Hosea 11, God's heart recoils at Miss Cindy's pain on earth and at your pain here this morning. And you can love a God like that, and you can worship a God like that, because He's true. And if you can explain Him, if you can fold Him up like a handkerchief and put Him in your top pocket, the one thing I'll tell you that's true is you've got the wrong God. He's bigger and better than you could ever imagine. And if you come to Him this morning, I tell you, He'll not cast you out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O God, for your glory and your majesty. It's beyond us, O God. We're out of our depth. But it's wonderful to spend a little time thinking about it, and we pray, O God, as we do, that you will nourish our hearts and give us faith not to doubt in the darkness what you tell us in the light, but you are for us in all of your being, not against us, and nothing can separate us from your heart and from your love in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.